How can we decolonize technology in scholarship about media, communication, and digital culture? About this and many other important questions is this conversation with Paola Recaorte in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Paola Ricaurte Quijano. Paola is Associated Researcher and Professor at Tecnológico de Monterrey. She's also Associated Researcher at the Bergman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, International Professor in the Department of Social Sciences and Humanities at Universidad Centroamericana in El Salvador, and is the co-founder of the outstanding nonprofit Tierra Común, which is a network of academics, professionals, and activists uh, who work to decolonize data. She is also the leader of the Latin American and Caribbean chapter of the Red in the Investigación Feminista, um, Feminist uh, Research Network, which is a community of academics, professionals, and activists that promote the development of uh, AI technologies with feminist values. She got her BA and her MA in international journalism at Universidad de Rusia de la Amistad de los Pueblos in Moscow, and uh, her PhD in language sciences at the National School of Anthropology and History. Her work has received many, many awards. Most recently, um, she was uh, deemed global professor in the Department of Media and Digital Cultures at Tecnológico de Monterrey and received the Premio Romulo Garza because of the impact of her scientific research. She is a member of Sistema Nacional de Investigadores at the CONACIT in Mexico, the author of 10 books and edited volumes just in 2022, three of them. An edited volume called Inteligencia Artificial Feminista, hacia una agenda de investigación para América Latina y el Caribe. Another edited volume, Global Debates in the Digital Humanities with the University of Minnesota Press. And a third edited volume, Mujeres de la Comunicación México. He has written extensively for journal articles, for journals, and for book chapters, her most uh, recent in 2022 uh, journal articles are um, uh, towards a popular theory of algorithms, which was published in Popular Communication with uh, Ignacio Siles, who was a 
another uh, guest in this podcast series and Edgar Gomez Cruz, who will be uh, a guest in the next quarter and ethics for the majority world AI and the question of violence at scale in media, culture and society. Paola, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you very much, Pablo. I'm super honored to be here talking to you and, and also, yeah, having this opportunity to, to know more about your work and also to have the opportunity to share my, my experience. The honor and the pleasure is all ours, Paola. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic? Well, I was never asked this question before, <laughs> so I really appreciate it. Um, well, I always wanted to be a teacher. As a child, I played school. I, you know, I created assignments for my students uh, who were my cousins. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, however, like my, my professional career, let's say, started when I migrated to Mexico. I am originally from Ecuador, from Guayaquil in particular, from the coast. And I studied journalism in Russia in the post-Soviet era. And when I returned to Ecuador, I couldn't find a job. So I didn't have like any possibilities um, to work in Ecuador. And I decided to continue studying here in Mexico. So I was offered a job by a university. I, of course, at that time, didn't know anything about the universities in Mexico, like in general. Um, and it was easy to get a job at that time. Now it's more complicated to get a job in academia. But at that time, it was more or less easy to find work. So I began teaching. And, and it's been a very rich journey, journey um, for me. Uh, being a teacher is one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. Wow, that's a strong statement. Um, <laughs> before we talk about being a teacher, let's talk about being a student. How was being a student in Russia during the <laughs> social transition? You don't want to know. Gavari Parusky. back to English. Um, <laughs> Well, first I came to Russia and I didn't know a word of Russian. Um, so I didn't know anything about Russian. And the system, well, uh, the way that they in, in the way that, that they used to teach Russian was very good. So I learned Russian uh, as many of yeah, my my co uh, uh, my friends uh, did. And um, and I studied journalism, <laughs> so uh, it was it was very interesting because our education was multidisciplinary. I would say in current terms, and we had a very strong background in philosophy, literature, <laughs> more than in journalism. I would say, so I learned a lot from Russian culture as well. I learned to type in Russian. 
But living in Russia uh, at that time was very hard. It was hard to find food. Um, we as Latin Americans, um, uh, it was difficult for us to, yeah, to tolerate the, the winter darkness. So it was not so easy. Um, but I think, it, again, uh, it was a, it was an experience that allowed me to expand my vision of the world. And I would say maybe it was important to understand the different narratives in the Western world and also in the non-Western world. At that time, the narratives about uh, social uh, systems were being destroyed, of course. Um, and I think, I don't know, uh, it was hard, but again, I'm grateful for that experience because we saw how the world was being, the, the world in which we believe was being destroyed. <laughs> um, but it gave, it gave us tools to envision different um yeah different possibilities of 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 constructing just and um alternative societies that are not framed within these big narratives that are dominant in history i would say so in that sense that period of your life has framed it seems um, how you think about issues that are very contemporary, for instance, artificial intelligence today. Yeah, um, I would say that that experience in particular uh, helped me understand also how, yeah, science and technology were used towards certain ends, like in different contexts, your political contexts. Um, and also to understand uh, the challenges for Latin America, because we have been always under the hegemony of the United States, but um, we are a very we are we're a region that has a lot to offer to the world in many senses, and I think that part of our challenge as a region is to think about ourselves as an autonomous entity and defining the terms of the conversation and not being just subordinate to the superpowers and reproducing their failed models. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so let's go back to you as a teacher. What, what is it that you enjoy about being a teacher and the classroom? Mm, I enjoy, well, I enjoy two things. I like to talk to young people because they give you a different understanding, different perspective of the world. And for me, it's fascinating because their experiences, of course, that are 
absolutely different from mine because I, again, <laughs> I studied in the post-Soviet Union. <laughs> I come from a very small country that uh, barely appears on the maps. <laughs> and for me, learning from different experiences and from different uh, cultures is always fascinating. And also uh, the way that they understand the world now, in particular, the practices and the relationships with technology. So that's one thing that I'm really grateful for. And the other thing is that they push you to be more, um, be more clear about your own thinking because they challenge you and they question you. So you have to really make sure that <laughs> the things that you say <laughs> are consistent, that uh, make sense to them. And if they don't make sense, then understand why. So I think it's a process of learning. And I always thought about teaching as a mutual, um, yeah, it's a it's a process of mutual growing and where you learn and they learn. I, I mean, we learn together, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, has how has this teaching philosophy and perspective in general how has it evolved over the years for you? Well, um, yeah, part of my teaching philosophy is how to get people, well, students involved with problems, social problems, the problems of their communities, uh, countries, realities. And I think that now we are facing different challenges that we didn't have before. I would say, well, for many people, the pandemic was the beginning of this online teaching and, and this I mean, digital format of teaching. But for me, um, unfortunately, after uh, the earthquake on 2017 in Mexico City, it was the beginning of my online teaching. So I spent almost five years teaching online and it was super hard because I never saw my, again, the bodies and <laughs> the relationships that you can build when you are in person. So um, now that I got back to um, in-person um, classes, I found difficult to reconnect in a different level with my students. Um, and I think that it's not only because of the pandemic, uh, I think that it's because there are many discourses that contribute to the idea that they cannot change anything. So that's something that worries me because I think we have a great responsibility as academics to, to reinforce the idea that human beings are resistant, that are resilient, and that they have power to change the things that they don't like. So I think that would be 
the difference. And I think that is the main challenge that I face as a teacher today. So where, where do you think that change comes from? And how can we fight against the situation that you have articulated? Well, um, for me, it's part of the, of how this system works. Um, we need, well, the system needs you to believe that you are disposable, that you are not powerful, that you are alone, that you, that you cannot change anything, that, that helps the system. Um, also, the relationships that we build together, that we build now are, given the conditions, the precarious conditions in which we live now are difficult. It's difficult to relate to others these days. It's difficult to talk to people. It's difficult to meet people. It's difficult to find the ways to connect in a more significant way. Mm, but again, it's part of the whole system. Um, so we need to fight back, making visible how these mechanisms do not contribute to social organizing, for example, do not contribute to the idea that uh, you are um, part of a community, you are part of a collective, that you can collectively fight for the future that you want. So I think that we need to go back to basic idea of what means to be in the world with others. I think we need to go back to like the basic, uh, again, relational ontologies. We are all connected and everything that you do affects me and everything that I do affects you. So how can we manage this rupture and this disconnectedness that is very useful for the system? Now, in this interconnectedness, not all beings, um, not all actants or things have the same power. Power asymmetries are, um, you know, quite remarkable these days. Mm -hmm. You talked about um, the hegemony of the US in Latin America, um, you know, I would say for over a hundred years now, uh, if not more. Um, how do you see that manifesting in the field, in the academic field, the studies, media, communication, digital culture? And uh, what are some resources that we might have at our disposal to fight um, pervasive inequalities and sort of systemic injustices? Yeah, um, of course, power imbalances are huge. Mm. But historically, the way that people have fought against, against these power imbalances is organizing. 
is in a collective way. Understanding how um, all these mechanisms, as I was saying before, these knowledge production systems, these institutions that we create, the relations that are mediated and, and, and yeah, and now are social technically mediated, but are mediated in a certain way to produce certain things. Mm, if we understand the, how these mechanisms work, then we are in the capacity of, of reversing or fighting or, or uh, disrupting these mechanisms. So for me, the only way is the collective way. Um, and there, as I said, these mechanisms operate in different layers of society, in every layer of society, in the economics, uh, in knowledge production systems, uh, law um, practices, cultural practices, uh, our subjectivities, um, our markets, the way that we organize. So there are many things that we can do. We can change um, the frameworks. We can change the way we relate to each other. We can change our institutions. We can change um, the way that we conceive our reality and the way that we imagine the future. Okay. Very interesting. And you have spent time at Harvard, you've spent time at Columbia before Harvard. Um, your work is, you know, by definition, global. How would you sort of characterize these conversations about technology, communication, information, data, and justice, or lessons? Um, in different national contexts? Um, yeah, one, one just small commentary about my work being global, because that's one of the things that is more challenging for scholars that are based in the global south, mm, that there are centers of power and knowledge that we usually do not reach that we usually are excluded from. So this discussion um, <clears throat> of course is shaped by, by certain actors and interests. This discussion about technology, corporate actors invest a lot of money uh, loving governments, universities, uh, professors to produce the knowledge that they need, the laws that they need, mm, governments also um, are articulated with, with corporations. So for me, the discussion about social technical systems needs to connect the global and the local and to understand how the local is uh, shaped by the global conversation, the global money <laughs> that is invested to shape that conversation. And we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot to do in our own countries because our governments have this 
ideas of technological development that are not based in the ideas of the common good or um, including the communities. Our governments in general have this idea of technology that is associated with development, quote unquote. And as I said before, <clears throat> this is not sustainable and this is not good for us. So <clears throat> our challenge in our own um, countries is to change the framework, to make these processes not easy for governments or corporations. Uh, we have to be involved in discussions. I'm today. I'm participating in a global discussion about what should be the global digital compact, and it's very complicated because yes, we need to agree on what are the basic conditions to develop uh, technologies and and understand what technologies are um, for society. But again, uh, there are particularities in our countries that are not shared maybe by other countries and how to make sure that our problems are also heard in these conversations. We have the problems of immigrants that are being surveilled by automatic uh, technologies automated uh, that are killed, being killed by automated weapons. And maybe this is not the case for other countries, but uh, um, we need to discuss these issues. Our governments need to understand the problems of technologies that are used to surveil the poor, uh, the immigrants, and those who are considered dangerous for the system. So for me, as an academic, I don't conceive myself just as an academic, I consider myself as a citizen that has a responsibility in, um, in our context, in my local context, but also uh, that has a responsibility to make sure that our realities, our difficult realities are heard and considered in the global conversation. That's fascinating. Let me, let me follow up on that. So, so far in our conversation, four sort of roles, at least four have appeared, right? The academic, the activist, the policymaker, the citizen, right? And they are all distinct because they are different roles, but they are all interconnected, right? How do they inform each other and how are some challenges that happen when you switch from one to the other in the course sometimes of a single conversation? <laughs> yeah, I've never thought of that either. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, the role changes, um, but I see myself um, first, I need to be informed. That's my first responsibility to be informed about these issues. I need to know, for example, what are the laws here to protect data or rights, human rights uh, in Mexico? What's doing the government? And then when I'm participating in global discussions and I'm participating in some global discussions, 
my role is to um yeah to to make visible our situation as a country that for example is not a country that has a very um strong uh quote unquote technological development um because the discourses of these industrialized countries is very powerful so our position is a position of subordination because they are not considering our realities, our context. So my role there is to make sure that um, we are not again, just legitimizing their processes. And when I'm with my students, um, I bring these conversations to the class. I discuss with them what is being discussed at UNESCO about AI and or ChatGPT, <laughs> I bring it to the class and it's, it's part of the conversation of the critical thinking of what's happening in these um, other um, places and, and, and organizations and, and, and institutions. So, um, and as a citizen, <laughs> I'm also working on uh, elaborating reports and policy reports to make sure that our governments understand the implications of developing technology, technologies without considering basic um, human rights, for example, data protection, um, surveillance, and, and all these things that our governments are unfortunately doing uh, very badly, so. <laughs> okay, now, you are very actively involved in at least two very important um, academic activist initiatives, right? They're a combination of both, Tierra Común and the Feminist Network. So um, could you tell us a little bit uh, more about the genesis of both, which are collaborative initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. um, which span, you know, colleagues in, in many different parts, um, of the academy and many different geographic territories. Um, so how did those come about? Um, what kind of your involvement, what, what has been your involvement? And, and what, what are the main sort of um, lessons that you learned so far from doing this kind of work? Um, well, Dimiko Moon emerged like as Part of a conversation with Nicole Rie. I invited him to present the uh, the book uh, that he wrote with Ulises Mejia, The Cost of Connection. And, and he was saying, oh, why don't we gather somewhere? And I was telling him, we don't have money to travel to places. We as academics in Latin America, we don't have money to go anywhere. <laughs> Our universities don't pay us uh, to travel or don't cover our expenses. Um, and that's why I I just recently joined different uh, uh, different conver international conversations. Um, so our idea was how to create a, a space of conversation uh, for academics that have the same concerns that we have. Um, so we began to invite people that we saw that we were discussing these issues with a critical framework from different contexts in Latin America in general, mostly in Latin America, but also in other contexts. And we had our first in-person meeting in December. 
And it was super interesting because they have the same concerns, how we as academics can do things to change the framing of the conversation, to intervene in our public policies, to do things with communities. Um, and it was very inspiring because there are amazing people doing amazing, amazing things around the world. So I think it's important to create these networks to really feel that we are not alone, that we together can, yeah, think together and try to do things together, <laughs> to think and act. And on the other hand, the Feminist AI Research Network is a network um, that is part of a bigger project, is supported by uh, IDRC, this Canadian um, institution, organization. Um, but this network, my role in this network is to, again, foster conversations among amazing, amazing women in Latin America that are doing amazing things in different fields. They're activists, they're researchers, they are developers, data scientists, sociologists, artists. Um, but I think, well, we say that AI is a feminist issue because it's AI is a matter of power. So we have something to say about that. And we are basically learning from each other, trying to develop things uh, with each other. Uh, we wrote this book together that collects not only like academic papers, but also activist uh, discussions or, or products and resources. And also I included a text from uh, Jasnaya and also Jasnaya Aguilar from Tajeo Diaz, who is a collaborator of Jasnaya in the collective that is called Colmix. Um, so it's, it's again, it's the same thing, how to foster these conversations, how to imagine together ways of intervening um, the world we live in. And I think we have a lot of things to do. <laughs> what has been the reception to the work of both Tierra Común and the Feminist AI Network? Well, we have, of course, there is a very good reception among people that thinks like, like, in a critical way about uh, uh, data and technology. It has been fascinating um, to find many, many people that supports the work that we do. But of course, there is a resistance. Uh, there, yeah, a very strong resistance from certain circles, um, institutions um, that think that we are very radical. <laughs> Are you very radical? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very, very good. So, so with that radical attitude, you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the study of media, communication, digital culture to change. What would you wish for? Oh, well, um, I would say that I would like to see us recovering more of non-Western epistemologies in our critical interpretation of reality and more communities, communities uh, with legitimate knowledge that need to be, uh, of 
course heard by academics. Thank you very much, Paula. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you to our audience for staying with us through the end. And I invite everybody to join uh, us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Paula. This was terrific. Thank you. <laughs>